0: Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now, your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co hosts, and we've got a special guest with us today, a special treat for you, Micah Locker. Say hello to the people. Hey, guys. Honored to be here. Micah, thanks for being with us. Micah is the president and founder of Anchor Investments, which is a real estate investment company. He is also the founder of Mission Hotels, uh, which is a very generous company, and we'll get into all that. But Micah, I know that uh, you and I met through. You're just listening to this, you know, uh, and uh, you've commented on some of the social media and that sort of thing, and we've connected in that way. And I know you've. Talk to some folks at uh, Hope, where one of the co-hosts, you know, is uh, is on the board and a founder, Jeff Rutt. And so, anyway, it's kind of fun to have this small world connect. So, once again, thanks for being with us. It's going to be great to hear your story.
0: Thanks, Jeff. I'm honored to be here. I've uh, I've literally listened to every episode. This uh, podcast has just very much resonated with me. And I know Alan Barnhart and did a journey to generosity with him, and then. I, I know that people would hope and love what you guys are doing. So thanks to you and Jeff Rutt and Alan for putting all this together.
1: Oh, well, listen, it, it's fun. And as I was, as we were saying before we started recording today, you know, to me, I literally think of these podcasts as just, it's like having lunch with a new friend or even an old friend and talking about our favorite topic, which is using your platform of your business as a platform for generosity. And that takes all kinds of forms. And I, sometimes I'll get done with that lunch and go, boy, I wish my friends had heard that you know? And so this is just an opportunity for a couple of buddies to uh, have a conversation about that. And so maybe we just start from the beginning like we normally do. I know you live in Nashville now, but where'd you grow up and what was uh, your family like growing up?
0: Yeah. So a big part of my story is I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee on literally the wrong side of the tracks. And uh, I'm one of five kids. I mean, I always say I'm a counselor's dream. I'm the middle of five kids. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) the challenges that come with that, but I, Yeah, my parents were good people, just had a hard time making enough money to support a family of our size. And my mom's just a super hard worker and kind of exemplified that to us. And, you know, God was super generous to my family. Like I always tell people, we didn't starve to death as kids, but anything outside of basic household expenses was emergency. And, you know, that I'll get into my story later, but I'm very passionate meeting, you know, the needs of people in that situation because. I always said like we were the working poor, like, you know, my mom was working as hard as possible to provide for a family of seven, but just couldn't make enough money to make all ends meet. So, yeah, I grew up in Memphis through a really cool story of how God works. We were provided with a house in uh, Germantown, which is a, the best public schools in Memphis at the time I was there. And it was a it's a really great story. But the the short version is is basically for two plane tickets. This family basically gave us their house and let us assume their very low mortgage that we could afford. And the trajectory of our lives was changed. We were zoned for one of the worst schools in Memphis, and we ended up going to one of the best schools in Memphis. And that truly just changed the trajectory of me and my siblings' lives. We still didn't have any money, but we were uh, able to go get a great education. And from there, I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, which I haven't been able to admit for the last 15 years, but because of this football season, I'm able to admit that again. Nice. <laughs> it, it's good, good to be back in just a, a relevant position in college football. And I don't want to leave out, I'm happily married to Britt, my wife, eight years. I have two daughters, Lizzie and Rosie, who are five and three. And I have a son, Eli, who is one. So I'm I'm very much in the thick of parenting and uh, the fun that all that involves. But, you know, kind of back to my story. So I went to UT for college. I was actually pre-med for a couple of years and realized that I did not want to stay in school for 12 more years to become a doctor. Such a hard path. It's a long path. So I, I switched to finance. And then I was on a mission to go to Wall Street and manage money. And basically through a great mentor in college, I was so laser focused on going to Wall Street and being successful. And my college mentor, because I'd switched majors midway through college, I had lost hours, credit hours. So I had to go back to Knoxville for a, a final semester to finish. And my mentor said, Hey man, you ought to think about like at least trying something else. You already have a job in New York if you want it, but like, would you consider something else? And I said, Well, maybe real estate. That's the only thing I could ever possibly see myself doing. And so I worked for a friend of his my last semester. And about 60 days in, I was like, This is such a better path for me, such oh. a better fit for my wiring. So yeah, so I graduated UT and got a job in Nashville. I moved here almost 20 years ago.
1: What was it about the real estate business that captured your attention?
0: I loved, I mean, part of my story was the way I grew up, my dad had been in and out of work my whole life. And he had always raised us and he had said, hey, you guys need to get a profession. You need to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, architects, like get a professional degree. You'll always have job security. You'll be able to provide for your family what we weren't. And you know, that was kind of how I was raised. I literally didn't know an entrepreneur or a business owner my whole life. Like a lot of my friends' parents were just kind of employees at a company. And I did not realize you could own your own business. I mean, I knew people obviously own their own business, but I didn't think that was possible from where I was coming from. And in college, I met, did a fraternity and I met one of the guys in my fraternity. I remember we were sophomores and we we were at home for like a Thanksgiving break. And my buddies like, do you want to go play golf at the country club? I'm like, well, first of all, how much does that cost? He's like, oh, it's on my dad. I was like, great. I'm in, you know? So, so we went and his dad was on the tee box waiting for us. And I was like, oh, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I mean, it was like a Wednesday afternoon. He's like, oh man, you guys are in town. Like, I'm going to play golf with you guys. I'm like, how'd you get off work? He's like, oh, (laughs) myself. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, and so he really opened my eyes to the fact that you could be an entrepreneur and own a business, and then I always like the aspect of real estate that you know you can have an asset that actually works for you, and like you don't have to show up at an eight to five. You could have an asset that's producing revenue. That you have to do a lot of hard work to get the asset and get it stabilized, but at some point, the asset's working for you, and it's not about the time that you're punching a clock.
1: Well, it's it's unique that you saw that so early. You know, I think a lot of people enter an industry. I mean, at least maybe I'm extrapolating my own experience, but you enter sort of a professional industry and then you figure out maybe I could own a company within that industry or something corollary. But it's really interesting that that you saw that right away, right? Right out of the box.
0: Well, and part of my story, just to clarify, I was actually a real estate broker for a couple of years. That's how I got started. And then I had, you know, God is just so direct in my path. Like, one of my clients who I did a lot of work for in Nashville, he was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he called me one day and said, man, I've always wanted an office in Nashville. It's such a great market long term. And he's like, would you ever consider partnering with me? I like how you work. I've loved your, you know, your character and how you've worked. He's like, and I would partner with you. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I got to think and pray about this. Like For the first time in my life, I was actually paying my bills, helping my family. Like, and I was like, it's a big risk to leave. What what was projected to be a successful career, and I was starting to have some success to go out, no salary, kind of burn all the savings I had made, and, and and go out on my own. But through a lot of prayer, I I just remember one day I was like, you know, I think this is what God would have for me. Like it's it's a risk, but I remember walking my office one day and I looked around and there was a bunch of guys who were highly successful in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and I was like, man, these guys could not leave this business. You know, they their life and lifestyle and season of life, like they have to make X amount of money and they can't go start a company and make zero. And, and I was young and, you know, I think I was 25 years old. And I was like, you know what? I can leave. I don't have a family to support you and, and I hope it works out, but if it doesn't like I'm the only one that's affected. So that's how I started my entrepreneurial journey.
1: I got to tell you, man, that is very unique to me because one of the questions we ask, you know, most of the folks listening know that I'm in the wealth management business. And one of the questions we Try to ask people at the beginning of a relationship is what is your first memory of money? And so you know, when you were sharing earlier about the way you grew up and how the family kind of struggled a little bit with with finances, sometimes that drives people, kids in that situation to really value you know having a big emergency fund, maybe the safer path, as you kind of described what your dad was sort of encouraging you to do is like, you know, be more careful. It sounds like, you know, maybe take a less risky path. So I know you prayed about it, but how do you kind of reconcile that for yourself?
0: <laughs> well, I, I got a leadership coach and counselor here in Nashville, uh, Jeff Schulte with Ten Man, which I highly recommend if you mm-hmm. need help. But, you know, he says the good news about you growing up in chaos is like it seems normal to you. Like my house was frankly chaotic. And I've also come to the conclusion as I've gotten older, like, I've seen people who grow up kind of poor go two directions. You're either obsessed with uh, money and security or you realize how little it takes to be happy in life. And I was frankly, always grateful. Like I fell in the latter camp. Like I, because I mean, we had a very happy household growing up, you know, like we, I joked, it took me going to college to know how poor we were, you know, it's like you meet people with money and you're like, Oh, I didn't, I thought everybody had been working since they were 12 years old and, you know, like helping their parents pay bills and, you know that was just normal for me, so I think God just kind of prepared me because obviously I'm in a business now that's high risk, and you know there's a lot of dollars moving around. We have to borrow money from banks, and uh, so it's uh, you know, but I've that part has never stressed me out, frankly.
1: Well, I think this is pretty cool because a lot of times, and we were talking before we started recording a little about what's unique about your story, and and one of the things I think that's unique about your story is you kind of got on this path early. You know, some people have like a mid-career change or like I know you're uh, familiar with Halftime and Halftime is, you know, a book by Bob Buford, for those that don't know. And I always call it a euphemism for the midlife crisis, you know, but but, but, (laughs) that's right. But you kind of got on this earlier. I know you're, what are you, 42 now? Is that about right? That's right. And so, you know, with young kids and that kind of thing. So I, I'm excited to kind of unpack your story a little more for people that are maybe on the younger side of of this journey. And, uh, you know, you don't always have to wait till later. Maybe there's something you can do along the way. So maybe before we go further in the career piece, where are you along this side? Now you're in your kind of mid-20s, maybe get into late 20s as you start doing this. What's your faith journey look like? Because I know you're a faithful person.
0: That's right. Well, I mean, I'm eternally grateful for Young Life, which I'm still extremely involved in. Yeah, Young Life's really how I started walking with the Lord. I was a kid that didn't enjoy going to church or the one that we went to. And I um, it was a very legalistic environment, frankly. And I got involved in Young Life and I was living on both sides of the fence. I was a great performing student and a great kid, at least in my parents' eyes, but I was you know, starting to experience the world in high school and couldn't decide which way I was going to fall out and, you know, made, frankly, some poor decisions. And the Young Life people came around me and, you know, they just loved me so well and showed me what a picture of Jesus could look like. And I was like, you know, if that's religion, I could be about that. Like, if that, like, you know, religion over rela- relationship over religion. But I was like, this is, if that's Jesus, like, I'm into that. If it's this church I go to, I'm not into that, you know. And uh, so I'm super involved with Young Life still to this day. Ended up being a Young Life leader for years because I just was a I was a kid who needed the relationship in order to meet Jesus. You know, I needed people to practically love on me and that people that profess to love Jesus. And I'm like, well, that person's a great person. And they go to all my sporting events. They're there when I need them. They're always there, and they're not judging me for you know, having a beer or whatever. And, and then eventually I was like, well, as I got deeper into it, you know, came to meet the Lord. And so that, that started my faith journey in high school. And, um, and then frankly, when I got into business, like, because of the way I was raised, I mean, we always thought like, or it was my mom, I said, like, work is going to be your way out. And so I didn't get married till I was 34 years old. And frankly, like I always joke that I brought Wall Street hours to Nashville, Tennessee. Like I was like, I was like, I want to work. I was not doing it for like a scoreboard, like my personal financial gain. But like my stated financial goal was help my mom, help my siblings if they need it. And then to make sure my family just didn't live as tight as we lived growing up. But that was it. But like, but I did love working hard. And I found a business that frankly rewarded you for hard work cause I've always been either commission or production based. And so I, um, so I was like, in my mind, I was like, I'm not a workaholic because I volunteer with young life. I hang out with my buddies, but I always say like, if I didn't have plans, I was going to work till nine o'clock at night. Like, and I put some bad patterns in place, frankly. And I had some, but I always said like, Hey, when I get married, you know, I'll slow down and I'll be at home at five 30 for dinner and, you know, and hang out. But, but when I did get married, the Lord used that in powerful ways to like, slow me down because I was like, my mentor is jokes. He's like, you still, you didn't down downsize the size of your business. You just said at 530, oh crap, I got to get home. I told my wife I'd be home for dinner and you of through your papers in there and rushed home. And uh, so, but you know, the Lord has been a consistent part of my journey and, you know, just, through church and, you know, Bible studies and good friends, just really digging into the relationship with him and then taking that into my business.
1: Well, I mean, you've really gotten this sort of generous business owner picture earlier than most. So, I mean, God's hand has clearly been on you through this whole uh, journey and sometimes it's easier to see, you know, as they see in the rearview mirror, than over the hood of the car, but it's obvious already that that's the case. So, Okay. So in your mid-20s, you get a partner. I think that's where we kind of left off the professional story. You're going to start doing development deals. Is this the idea? What's the business plan? How does that develop from there?
0: Yeah, so so my business partner, who's an outstanding man and 40-year retail. So I'm in the retail industry, shopping center business. And he had been one of the early Walmart developers. And so by the time I linked up with him, we were doing Walmart now owns all their own real estate, but we would kind of develop everything else around them, the little shopping centers, bank parcels, restaurants. And so what we were doing was kind of following them around the Southeast. And so you fast forward though to 2007, 2008, the great financial crisis hits. And I always joke like me and one of my buddies were the local partners and he was, we were the hustlers, he was the money. Well, you know, when the financial crisis hit, the bank started really leaning on him and he was able to weather a storm and so were we, but we always laugh. If if you're the hustler and your money guy doesn't really have the money anymore, you're in a bad spot. And so there was about an 18 month period there where it was really rough, frankly. And, you know, we didn't know if we're going to kind of make it through because he had offices like ours all over the country. And so as the bank started, you know, calling loans and doing what they do in times of financial distress it got pretty dicey there for a while. and uh, so then fast forward. so for about a year in 08, early o nine, I worked with him to help, you know finish well there, but also wrote a business plan for Anchor, which is my company today. and uh, we started that in two thousand and nine. and you know, just with the thesis that like the best time to buy assets is when the market is just hammered, and I'm a big Warren Buffett fan and reader and I, you know, very much buy into his philosophy that you make money when you buy assets when they're depressed. And it might be scary to do it, but it's the time to do it. And uh, in our world, you know, you really kind of make your money on the buy. So, so I went and raised a bunch of money and started this company and God's just really blessed it over the last 13 years.
1: Wow. So, so, but the end of the last deal, it it doesn't sound like, I mean, you had to kind of you had a financial partner was your partner kind of a lead on that and you were a junior situation or i mean how painful was that for you to to extract Ex- yourself from that? cuz that was for a Extremely. lot of people that was, yeah
0: i mean it was 3 years of lawyers calling us Workouts. it's right? uh, yeah. yeah we worked through it and we tried to be men of character right. and work with the banks to to be fair and everything. I had a mentor that was like, hey, the bank might not ultimately give you the opportunity, but we were able to to survive it. But it was very stressful for me and my local partner and then our money partner as well. And we were all three in it together and can't say enough nice things about those two guys. I mean, I always tell people like, you really find out what people's character is when you're in a tough situation. And both of those men are awesome. I mean, I I would do anything with them today. They just really showed their character because we were in a really sticky situation, like almost every retail developer in the country.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I like the way you described, sort of reconciled my question about like, how do you grow up uh, in the situation you did and then be able to take this risk? And you use that word chaos. Well, talk about chaos in 08, 09. You know? I mean, I was working for uh, Wall Street bank. And, and uh, I mean, we were watching uh, Morgan Stanley's, you know, commercial paper yield in the twenties, you know, like, ah, it's Friday. Not sure this is going to be around on Monday. (laughs) That's right. I mean, it was, it's interesting as we talk about, you know, we always, as you've listened to these podcasts, you know, we always try to talk about like nothing's up and to the right man straight. Like there's always pain. And like, for most of us in this generation, if you're over 40 years old, you lived through 0809 um, almost everybody's got an 09 story because there's barely an industry that wasn't touched i, I can't think of one frankly no, wasn't either. touched and real estate kind of at the epicenter not kind of it that's, was at the epicenter you that's know, right. of that crisis and so to have lived through that and survived that i mean what are some of your lessons maybe from that period
0: well i mean from a financial perspective yeah like one of the greatest blessings I got of that is like, it's easy to say you don't care about money. But like, <laughs> when you've had a good run for, you know, the first seven years out of college, and frankly, for your age, you've made a lot of money. And then all that is taken away in a very short amount of time, you really start to decide what your views on money are. And I, the whole time I've been generous and, you know, with what God had given me, but like, I said I didn't care about money, but like, then it was the first test. Like, well, do I? Because I grew up without anything. Then you do very well for someone in their 20s. And then all that's taken away, all those seven years of hard work is taken away in about six months. And you got to kind of decide, what do you think about money? And for me, I was like, well, I'm still happy. I'm still healthy. Like, you know, I can go try to do this again. And it really just, God used it to really cement in me like, yeah, I really, my measure of happiness in life is not the the balance of my bank account. And so that was the biggest blessing I got out of that whole situation was like, that just proved to me that like, I'm never going to find my happiness and wealth.
1: Mm. I think that's so good. It really is a test of those things that you, that you profess. You know, I remember thinking the same thing going, oh man, all this work for all these years and you know, just everything's, you know, the financial statement is a fraction of what it used to be. Like, <laughs> that's right. Oh, man. There may have been some tears shed over that as, a, <laughs> as you start learning those lessons, though, you know, like, do that's I really right. believe all of this stuff? That's right. So that's a heck of a test. OK, so you so luckily you survived that era. You start the new business. Are you kind of following the same model where you're following Walmart around or what the new model?
0: Well, when the financial crisis hit, our idea was we're just going to go buy things on sale. So Mm -hmm. it didn't matter if it was a retail. I mean, my background was retail shopping center. So that was going to be my number one focus. But we also bought a bunch of subdivisions. We had developed with my old company some subdivisions around our shopping centers. And so I had a background in that, knew a lot of home builders and I always laugh. Like the the first dirtiest word in America then was residential, and the second was retail. So we focused on residential and retail. We also bought some office buildings and industrial because I'd had a background as a broker doing some leasing on both of those asset types. But like, frankly, there just weren't many buyers out there. So you know, the bank would call us and say, "Hey, we got this great warehouse. Here's wow. what we got to get for it." And you'd be like, "All right, we'll, we'll buy it." Like it's cheap enough that the margin for error is wide, and so. But we predominantly focused. We quit doing development, and we just focused on buying, you know, undervalued assets with a plan to turn them around. And so uh, that's what we did. We just started buying exi- existing assets that were financially distressed. Sometimes they were physically distressed as well because people didn't have the money to fix them, and they had roof leaks and everything else. But we just started buying what we felt like was good assets at good prices around the country.
1: Did you, are you still holding any of those things or have you unloaded most of the stuff you bought at that time?
0: We have most of the stuff we bought in from kind of 09 through 2012, we've turned, but like we own a lot of assets that I've probably owned for 10 years. So we've, a lot of them have turned into long holds because, you know, from pretty much 09 to 14, everybody was still, and we were still buying assets in 2014 that had been foreclosed on in 2010, you know, so. It was a long cycle to kind of work all those assets through the system. So we do still own quite a few assets that we bought during that season.
1: Gotcha. And then at some point, you started taking on investors, or have you always done that?
0: I've always taken on investors. Yeah, that, I've since the day I started, I've always uh, taken on investors because I frankly didn't have the money. And so we would you know, we bring on high net worth individuals. They'd invest, they'd get a return. And then the better we performed, the more we got paid.
1: And is that, do you do it on a per deal basis or do you have a fund?
0: We actually still do it on a per deal basis. We've analyzed over the years, launching a fund and just have always come to the conclusion that our model works very well for our investors. And we have about 35 families that invest with us now. So, you know, it's works very well for them and for us. And we're like, if it's not broke, don't fix it.
1: Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting is we were talking before uh, the show about how you kind of made this shift somewhere along the line of thinking about generosity from just your own income to using the business as a platform. When did that shift start happening, thinking about the business as a platform for generosity?
0: Yeah, so I would give our common friend, Lloyd Reeb, a lot of uh, credit for helping me. Part of my story is, well, before the, let me explain this. Uh, for years, I I thought, you know, the business makes money. It disturbs you know, returns to me personally. And then my wife and I, we choose to be generous. And before I was married, I chose to be generous, but I always saw it like the money kind of flowed. It came through our bank account and out when I was about 30, but so about five years ago, I, um, So in the span of about 90 days, my oldest brother died from a lifelong health struggle. He was 41 years old and uh, he had had childhood cancer and just due to the amount of radiation he had as a kid, he ultimately developed heart disease. They call it a radiated heart, but he had had multiple heart surgeries. And when he was 41, he didn't make it through his final surgery. And obviously that was just, we were holding out hope. It's like one surgery kind of bought him the next couple of years and then, you know, but like we were not emotionally ready for that and uh and you could never be. But in the span of 90 days, my brother dies and then I have my first child. And I um I had always wanted to be a dad. I, I kept kids at church when since I was young. Like I just love kids. I've always had so look forward, yeah. but like going through the biggest low of your life and the biggest high of your life in such a condensed amount of time, that was just so much to process. And then internally we had some issues with employees and it was, you know, thing it was just a lot going on. And I, um, I called a a mentor of mine named Tim Sinema in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's a halftime guy. And, uh, and he, we used to have monthly calls for a season and he would mentor me, you know, business, marriage, parenting. And, uh, and I was taught telling Tim all that had going on my plate. And he was like, man, that is gosh, that's a lot. And I said, Tim, I think I'm going to sell my business. I said, I believe I'm going to sell my business, take a year off here. reset on my life and then kind of decide what God might have me to do. Should I run a nonprofit? Should I do real estate? You know, What should I do? And Tim, which I'm forever grateful for, he said, man, I would just encourage you as a friend, do not make any decisions right now. He said, you have so much on your plate. And if you're not probably going to make a wise long-term decision. And he said, hey, have you ever read the book Halftime? I said, oh, it's hilarious. I said, I heard a guy speak about that at a men's group when I was 25 years old. I read the book, and I thought, man, I'll pick that book up again when I'm 50 or 60. And maybe, <laughs> maybe at that point I might have the ability to think about something other than work. And Tim was like, man, you need to reread that book. So I read it that weekend and it, it felt like Bob Buford had written that book for me. And it was just such a season that I was in. And, you know, the Lord just used that. So I signed up for the fellows program, went to Dallas on a quarterly basis, went through their one year fellows program. Thankfully, I got Lloyd as my coach, and he's been such a blessing to me. But through the halftime journey, they really helped me see that God has given me this business as a platform for generosity. And it's not the money doesn't flow through Anchor to Micah to give it away. It really is. Anchor is the platform. And that's what God God gave me this business to be generous. And we could just send a lot of money straight out through the business. So it really just flipped my mindset five years ago. And when I was like, all right, well, God gave me this platform and I'm going to use it to help other people. And it doesn't flow through me anymore. It flows straight out through the businesses that we own.
1: I love that. And for those listening, uh, we did have Lloyd Rebon, on episode 17. I had to just look up the number, but uh, he's just got a treasure trove of wisdom to share about how to kind of think like this. And he's also helped me. So that's a shout out to Lloyd from both of us on that. So you start thinking about this platform as a business. How does that practically work itself out in, well, one, in terms one, of what you did? Yeah.
0: yeah. One thing, yes, highly recommend that episode, by the way. But yes, one thing that that, uh, so one thing Lloyd helped me do was, is so I was still going through this season and I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I might ultimately sell my business And Lloyd said, "Man, just from the time I've known you, like if you don't do real estate deals anymore, like a part of you will die." He's like, "You love the business. You read about it all the time. Like you like the art of the deal." And he's like, "I'm the same way." Lloyd always. Lloyd was is a recovering real real estate developer. Yeah, Yeah, like he, he, you know, he's a recovering real estate guy as well. And he was like, "I'm just telling you as a friend." Like, but what he he said is like, he's like, I think we have to help like uh, change your mindset of like this is your platform for good and to to be generous. And so he's like, is there anything you're doing today that you could go scale to give away more money? And I said, well, we have this hotel business and we already give a percentage of the profits away. We have a program called Rooms for Rooms to connect the idea for guests of like, you rent a room at our hotel and we give rooms to homeless people at the mission. And we had always done that since we started the business. And Lloyd was like, I mean, why don't you just build more hotels? And I was like, great idea. Maybe we should just build more hotels. And, and so we have expanded that business. We now have three hotels, they're all in Nashville, and we we will open our fourth, hopefully next year. But Lloyd was like, why don't you guys just grow that business? And I had never taken any money out of that business. We had always given away the profits. Um, And so now we publicly state that we give the majority of our profits away. Yeah. We say that we're the only hotel company in America that gives away. I always laugh. We will always probably be the only hotel company in America that gives away the majority of the profits because it's not a great business decision. But you know, we feel called to do that. And internally at our company, we just treat it as those dollars don't exist. So we built this whole business just as a vehicle for generosity. And it's been a ton of fun for me and my team. And You know, they do such a great job on a day to day basis running those hotels. And it's just been a lot of fun to grow a business for the sole purpose of giving the money away.
1: Is this is such a cool idea. So it's like a business line dedicated solely to uh, philanthropy. And is it still... Do most of those profits still go toward kind of homeless or or that kind of ministry? Is it housing for housing kind of still?
0: Well, we've changed it. The dollars have gotten bigger over the years. So we've had more to give. So now we say that we support underserved communities. So we've expanded into teen moms and workforce training, all inner city issues um, and education, entrepreneurship. So we've expanded our partners. We have seven partners now. We started out with the four Major kind of homeless ministries in Nashville. And uh, and now we have seven partners. And as we open more hotels, we'll we'll grow our number of partners.
1: This reminds me of uh, a guy I met, Matt McPherson. For the I'm I'm not a big hunter, but for the hunters out there, Matthews Bows is a company that he started these these sort of high-end compound hunting bows. And I went to see him with a group and tourist facility and You know, I I think the Chinese were ripping off his bows and selling them cheap, and so his employees were saying, "Hey, why don't you design? He's a genius engineer. Design a cheaper bow, and we can sell it in other sporting goods stores." He's like, "I don't need the money." They're like, "Well, just give it away," and so he did. And and when I visited him years ago, he was supporting like 200 missionaries just with that new line of business. So I I love this concept. I I love this for somebody you know on the treadmill running, listening probably like you do because I know you have a treadmill. I'm just thinking like, what a cool idea is like, maybe there's a business line or or something else you could do to expand. And I love that about halftime that they try not to just say, hey, even though Bob Buford sold his cable company and then kind of, you know, started a nonprofit, I know he always said, that's not for everybody. Sometimes, you know, we can look, if you love the business, maybe that's the platform for ministry. And then I like this sub idea of and and maybe even within that business, maybe there's a line of business that is more specifically for that. so i just I just love it. how have your employees and other people involved in those ventures responded to that?
0: Well, we do the same do the structure with the number of families that invest with us on the commercial side. We yeah. don't have the same flexibility to give away That's the right. Reason. we do every <laughs> asset that we run has charity and community partners and the and where so if we own a deal in Birmingham, Alabama will support charities in Birmingham. I but see. like, so, but we do do that on the commercial, we are committed to any asset that we own or manage, we would be generous with that. It's just not to the scale. But we do encourage our investors, hey, give away, you know, generous portions of the returns that we provide for you, like our internal team, we choose to do that. But from an employee standpoint, like, one thing that I say at a lot of team meetings is like, When you're having that bad day, like working on something or a tenant's called and they're frustrated about a roof leak and they take it out on you, like you have to remember that you are working hard so that people that don't have the means could get a blessing. So there's people every night, we tell our team a lot, like there's somebody sleeping downtown Nashville right now or taking a warm shower because of our hard work. And I always tell them like, you're not working hard so that I can fly around on private jets. Like... You know, you're working hard, so we can give generous portions of these profits. the The shares that come to my company, we choose to give away generous portions. We can't require that of our investors, of but we do encourage them to do it. But it is a great recruitment tool for for people that buy into our culture because you know a lot of people in my world, and I'm not judging them, but like you know, they are growing massive real estate companies to grow massive lifestyles, and that we don't. I'm not choosing to do that, and so. I think it's a great competitive advantage for us to recruit the right type of team members who buy into what we're doing. And, you know, I've heard Jeff Rutt say that publicly. It's like, you know, that's a great, the team knows that the owner is not doing that just to enrich themselves. And so people can buy into working because I think people get tired of like, well, I've worked so hard at this company just so the owner can live this fabulous lifestyle.
1: Yeah. That's one of my favorite. Thanks for referring to that. That's one of my favorite Jeff Rutt lines is, uh, when he announced to his uh, management team that he had given the majority of the company, the foundation, one of his guys came up to him and said, uh, hey, this is great. Now you're one of us. <laughs> and awesome. uh, and I I real I use that line all the time because we're on that same journey. And, and I tell the team all the time, I was like, hey, I'm just one of you guys, man. I'm just uh, making my, my uh, salary the rest of uh, the way you are. And we're doing all of this is for a bigger purpose. So I just I love that. And I and I would suspect that doesn't hurt even in your marketing for limited partners or 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 whatever. Is that true? Totally.
0: Absolutely. And our tenants love it. I mean, our vendors love it. Like they all know our mission and we're very open about our mission. And so, you know, we tell them that and we talk about it a lot. So it does help. I mean, for the right type of investors, the right type of tenants, the right type of vendors. Like I think everybody can believe in that mission.
1: Yeah. And it aligns you kind of attract the right kind of people, frankly, that think like you do, that'll probably be more aligned with your decision-making, you know, totally maybe more patient and that sort of thing. So I think that's really incredible. Well, as we kind of wrap up here, Micah, you know, one thing that we always try to do toward the end of the podcast is just, you know, like we talked about earlier, these are, we're just a couple of business guys having a conversation to hopefully inspire Ah, uh, somebody else out there driving in their car that uh, wants to be on this path, just to nudge them along, and we never know what part of the story uh, does it. But one thing that I always found when I'm listening to something, or go to a conference, or whatever, as I always hope I can get one thing. Or reading a book, you know, what is one little practical thing I could employ tomorrow? You know, to to do. So if you know, like we were talking about where we start recording, you know, somebody's ten or fifteen years behind you. It's the twenty-five. Year old version of Micah, uh, maybe in uh, in Denver or wherever, thinking about this. How how might you encourage them in, down this path of the being a generous business owner?
0: Yeah, I mean, my practical tip is is like I you know hear the story of Alan Barnhart. You say like, how do I get from where I am today to giving away 100 percent of my business, Jeff? Rutt, like. David Weekly, you know, you read about these guys that are legends in this world of generosity. And I remember always thinking, like, how do I get there? And I've had mentors over the year just say, like, you got to start somewhere. So that's part of my story. Like, you know, I think you can listen to this podcast and have the perception like, oh, these are all very wealthy, successful people. But you know, I'm 42 years old with a very young family. And so my set of circumstances is different than David Weekly's. And so, you know, I would encourage people, you just start somewhere. It doesn't matter if you give away 1% of your profits or 5% or you start a sub-business line and give 10% of that one away. Like, you know, start somewhere. And we encourage our investors, like you just have to start giving somewhere. Figure out what your passions are. And if you're into inner city education, great. Go give some money and go to their banquet and hear the kids' stories. And like always tell them, like, I promise you'll get hooked. Like, you know, but you got to start somewhere and We've had a lot of investors over the years that have said, I love what you guys do. It's so cool. When I sell my business one day, I'm going to do more of that. And I always tell them, I always laugh and I say, I promise you won't. And I always joke that like wealthy people are not used to feedback. And especially when they're my investor. And I say, I mean that humbly, but like if you don't start doing it now, I said, the bigger your bank account gets, it's actually harder to give money away. I said, I know you think it's the reverse. And Jeff, you know that in the world you deal with, but frankly, like, The more money you get, the greater hold it has on you. And so I tell my investors, like, hey, start giving money now. Start getting passionate about ideas that you love and your wife loves and your kids can get into. And that way, when you do have that big liquidity event, you will be prepared for that. And it'll just be part of a muscle that you've worked over the years. And you'll love giving the money away at that point. And it won't matter the amounts because you've worked that muscle. It's just like exercising.
1: Oh, man. I was, while you were. Telling that, I was thinking the exact same analogy of working a muscle. Generosity is a muscle, and just like I remember when you know I, I used to be a big runner, and my sister wanted to get into running, and and like everybody who starts running, you get exhausted after the, like the first half mile. Everybody does the same thing. Like, no way I'm ever going to run a five k, let alone a marathon. And really, all you have to do is keep uh, working those muscles and, and keep running the miles, and it just magically you're able to do it. And so. Just exercising that muscle and starting to to do it. And, you know, the other the verse that came to mind as you were talking is, you know, where your money is, your heart is also. I love what you said about, you know, just start it and do something you're passionate about and you're gonna get hooked. That's how God set up the system to encourage our generosity is, you know, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like we get, frankly, more out of giving than we get out of from sometimes the receiver gets. So I love that hook. Well, listen, Micah, thanks so much uh, for being with us. You've you've given us all, you know just a ton of gems to take away. Thanks again.
0: Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Keep spreading the word. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk today.
1: All right. And engage like Micah, hit us up on social media, send us other guests that we should uh, connect with and so forth. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on uh, this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes.
1: Stay tuned for the next episode.